0: of human eye. Your leaders have withheld the truth. You are not alone in this universe. We have lived among you, hidden, but no more. If you resist us, we will destroy the world as you know it. Your world must not share the same fate as Cybertron, whole generations lost. Megatron must be stopped, no matter the cost. to now playing podcasts transformers retrospective series i would have waited an eternity for this hosted by our movie reviewers in disguise Stuart, jerry and arnie one shall stand one shall fall with the upcoming release of Michael Bay's Transformers Dark of the Moon, come back to NowFlyingPodcast.com each week as they roll out a new Transformers movie review and see if they are more than meets the eye. What you're about to see is top secret. Do not tell my mother. But be warned. These reviews will contain spoilers and mild language. Listener discretion is advised. This isn't my war. Not yet. But I fear it soon will be.
1: Bob Walk Green weep Minibob! Today we're discussing Transformers <laughs> Dark of the Moon! Starring Shia LaBeouf, Josh Dechamel, John Turturro, Tyrese Gibson, Rose huntington Wally
2: don't even know what kind of sonic malfunction caused you to yell so loudly, Arnie. It's good to hear from you.
1: Well, Matt. I'm taking lessons on performance from Michael Bay! <laughs> I have to shout everything!
2: <laughs> I'm Stuart in LA, and I'm not going to raise my voice
3: at all. Y- yeah, I've got a couple kids sleeping, so I'm just going to say hi, this is Jerry. <laughs> But sadly, Arnie, I knew exactly what you were doing with, you know, everything I've been reading online is, hey, here's a question for you. How many times does Shia LaBeouf just scream somebody's name at the top of his lungs? I don't
2: know, Jerry! (laughs) (laughs) It's no exaggeration. It's the one thing that was ever-present. Well, it's the first time I'm seeing it in theaters. You know, this is my first theatrical with the sound working Bay experience. So I get it now. The man (laughs) likes his volume. It's cranked to 11, 12 if he can do it.
1: Wow. Well, you know, to misquote the movie, for our listeners, let's make this review worth it.
2: You know we have to we have to do it at bay time, so this has got to go on at least three hours long. <laughs> oh my god. And
1: the recommends have to take 40 minutes of it.
3: <laughs> Guys, I'm not feeling the good vibe here. I have to say, in the entire
1: history of now playing, this is the podcast I've dreaded most.
3: Not dreaded watching
1: the movie. I went into this movie so full of optimism, but I have no idea, guys, how I'm about to talk to you for an hour or more about a movie that defies criticism and just, it doesn't want to be analyzed. It doesn't want to be talked about. Even Man-Thing had more to it. Man-Thing raised more serious questions than Dark of the Moon.
2: (laughs) I wouldn't go that far, Ronnie, but uh, I I think I hear what you're saying. This has been built up, and not just by you guys, but I mean, I feel like they had you no, know, fallen, and I'm not sure he was gonna be able to get up after that last one. I mean, I think we could all agree, and we did. That was pretty much a travesty. Now, how much you wanna call it a travesty, was it just as bad as the first one, <laughs> or was it the worst the bay's ever done? Still be debated, but- Well, you haven't seen Pearl Harbor.
1: I still think Pearl Harbor's below that.
2: I haven't seen any of them, and I don't know that I will, but- My point is, this was his last best shot to redeem himself, right? I mean, this was the one where he had to pull out all the stops and prove that it wasn't a
3: mistake when Spielberg hired him for the gig. I think he brings it back here, and I'm looking forward to talking this because I'm not getting a good vibe from you guys here so far. And all right, well, as we always do
1: with our weekend of release, why don't we discuss when and how we saw it, and with these 3D films, what format, 2D, 3D. I saw it at a 9 o'clock showing on Tuesday night. Now, this movie was supposed to come out... The weekend of the fourth it got you know moved to the Wednesday and then they actually instead of just doing midnight showings went ahead and did nine o'clock showings which are good for sleep-deprived people like me who have troubles st- staying awake for movies till 3 in the freaking morning so I saw it, the premiere of it at 9 p.m. on Tuesday again this is the second film in now playing history the first being Green Lantern that Marjorie refused to go to so I had to call in the B team and <laughs> take our friend Ryan again who went to the green lantern with me. Wait but this is like back-to-back
3: movies though, right? You're starting a bad trend here. <laughs>
1: yes, yes. I ended up going and seeing this at 9 o'clock. I did see it in 3D, but not IMAX 3D because of the middle-of-week release night. I just couldn't do the five-hour car trip needed to see IMAX, so I saw standard 3D. And the crowd, I actually had bought my ticket a week ahead of time, and I was got there an hour early expecting, honestly, a sellout because the last ones have just made so much money. I was surprised that the audience was maybe a little over half full. Mostly people in their 20s and 30s. Some did bring kids. A couple brought infants in carriers. I guess a ticket's cheaper than a babysitter. It was a standard crowd and not overly full and they seemed to get what they wanted. Well, I pulled out all the stops. I This is
2: my first bay in theaters, not counting the drive-in where I couldn't hear upper audio channels. I wanted to do it right. I went to IMAX. 3D! With the enormous screen and all the sound channels that you could possibly squeeze in between the 70-foot screen, I wanted to see it big, because I figured if any movie deserved this, it would be this one. It was the first time I had been to this theater since I saw Avatar. It was the very same screen that I saw Avatar on. So, I had similar expectations, at least from a technical standpoint, of what I was going to get. And the crowd was full. It was an 845 show. And so, consequently, you didn't have the the costumers. They were standing in line. I think they bought their tickets for the midnight show and then didn't realize they could actually get in earlier. But for whatever reason, it was a lot of people that had just come out of work. Suit and tie folks, couples. I sat next to a couple that said proudly that they had been to the premieres of all three of them and that this was some kind of date. (laughs) <laughs> them. I. What a momentous occasion for them. I, I hope that they got what they wanted. It was an enthusiastic but not rabid fan base. I would say that I saw more people that were into it at Green Lantern at midnight than I did yesterday
1: evening. Well... Like you mentioned, with the customers going to the Midnight Show, the tickets for the Midnight Show were on sale for at least a week before the earlier shows were announced. And the earlier shows were announced, it wasn't just our chain, it was a nationwide thing that Paramount just said, we're going to do the earlier shows, and so it took several more days for those tickets to become available. So, what probably happened is they bought their tickets and decided, eh, well, I already paid.
3: Like you guys, I got in at a earlier showing, the 9 o'clock. I uh, saw it at a theater in Northern Kentucky. I won't with Dan the Rockstar, host of Republic Forces Radio Network, and we saw an IMAX 3D. That was the only theater kind of in the tri-state area that was showing it earlier. We had mostly a full house. I happened to have one seat kind of empty next to me, but for the most part, it looked pretty packed. The crowd was, you know, no costumers, but everybody was pretty into it. It was the kind of crowd that like applauded during the Harry Potter trailer. I mean, it's kind of just, that was the the mentality. The, the folks here were into all of these types of movies and they gave the applause at the end and everything about the film was huge. IMAX 3D, it was... Overall, a great crowd. And like you said, Artie is really glad to get in there, see it at nine, get in and get out, and <laughs> get some, get some good sleep afterward.
1: Well, Jerry, why don't you start us off with a plot summary, unless you want me to cut and paste from part one and replace all the occurrences of the city at the end with Chicago.
3: No, I think I can do it a little bit better than that, but the film begins yet again with a flashback that takes us to what appears to be the final battle on Cybertron before the Decepticons completely take over. An Autobot shuttle called the Ark, makes a last-ditch effort to leave Cybertron with technology apparently vital to the rebuilding of the planet. However, it is shot down by Decepticons and somehow eventually crashes on the moon in 1961. This becomes the real catalyst for the 60s space race in which the Apollo 11 mission was specifically sent to investigate the wreckage. In present day, Ness continues to operate and learns that Chernobyl houses an engine part from that arc which leads Prime to question the humans about what they know about the arc. The Autobots go to the moon discover the wreckage of the great Autobot leader Sentinel Prime, and five pillars that form a space bridge. Meanwhile, Sam Witwicky is living in Washington, D.C. with new girlfriend Carly Spencer and is basically frustrated at the difficulty in finding a job. He eventually lands one in the mail room of a large prestigious company in Washington, but is witness to a Decepticon attack in which a fellow employee, Jerry Wang, is killed, but not before he is able to give Sam key information to alien activity on the moon. Sam returns to Nest to help them out, but is not welcomed by new director Charlotte Mearing. However, he contacts Simmons to get down to the bottom of why Decepticons are killing humans, and it all seems to point to the shutdown of the NASA moon program in the early 70s. Optimus Prime activates Sentinel Prime with the Matrix, and soon he reveals that he is defective to the Decepticons with the goal of using the Space Bridge to bring Decepticons and eventually Cybertron to Earth. The goal being to utilize all of Earth's resources, including the humans, as a slave labor force. Sentinel Prime is successful in establishing the Space Bridge in Washington to bring more than 200 Decepticons to Earth to take over. Sentinel Prime demands that the Earth leaders exile the Autobots and they agree. Turns out that Carly's super-powerful, mega-rich boss Dylan Gould is a Decepticon liaison who has helped them set up the schemes within NASA. The Autobots go willingly, but are seemingly blown out of the sky when their shuttle launches from Earth. Meanwhile, Sentinel Prime and the Decepticon, set up a larger space bridge centered in Chicago to bring Cybertron to Earth. They establish a stronghold there that the U.S. military is not capable of breaking through. Sams manages to get to Chicago with a small army of troops led by Epps, but quickly gains reinforcements as we learn that the Autobots abandon the shuttle after launch. They break through, rescue Carly, manage to disrupt the Space Bridge transport of Cybertron. Optimus Prime is badly damaged in combat with Sentinel Prime, but Megatron intervenes and attacks Sentinel Prime. However, Optimus thanks Megatron by ripping his head off and then puts the final blows on Sentinel. Chicago's all but ruined, but the Decepticons are defeated once more. You know,
1: after Transformers 2,
3: I gotta say, I was thinking
1: back fondly of all things to the Martin Scorsese series we did, Stuart. (laughs) Oh, good. Because why? I was thinking how much after Transformers 2, you know, that I would just like to have a deep, in-depth discussion of a film that would have such great performances as maybe some Oscar-nominated actors, maybe some winners like John Malkovich and Francis Mm -hmm. McDormand and John Turturro. Mm -hmm. And here we are.
2: Yeah, I know. It's great. I've always wanted to see my favorite actor slumming it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And it seems that we now know what happened to all the bottles of Megan Fox's self-tanner. John Malkovich stole them. (laughs) (laughs) I couldn't believe the cast in this film. I just couldn't believe it. Because we've talked in the past two podcasts about how the cast was pretty much stuffed like a Thanksgiving turkey. I can't think of anybody who didn't return other than Megan Fox. (laughs) But now they have a whole bunch of more humans. Why don't we go through this movie and talk about the prologue where we get this wonderful, it felt like an Xbox 360 game of a battle on Cybertron. And right there, the 3D effects were completely selling me. How was that on IMAX?
3: It was fantastic. I mean, I thought the opening scene looked gorgeous. I mean, the only comment that I that I made while watching the movie is that I was pretty sure I'd seen the scene before at the beginning of Star Wars Episode 3 Revenge of the Sith. <laughs> Other than that, it was it was a neat place to start. We've obviously not seen a lot of Cybertron action in these movies, because everything's taking place on present-day Earth. But this movie obviously starts off with the same quick throwback to, hey, here's the Cybertronian history that you need to know to kind of understand where this movie's going. And thankfully, it only takes a few minutes. But the fact that we got such a cool battle action scene With that versus just Prime narrating a handful of events, I thought it was a a neat way to start off the film.
2: It's reminded me a lot of what the selling point was of the original movie, and that was the whole Mars probe thing. It seemed to be getting back to the idea that humans had intervened. as, As you say, the humans are involved because we've intervened in space, and that by reaching out to space, in this case, going to the moon, we've sealed our fate with the Decepticons. And that's maybe a little bit uh, nicer parallel than, say, having Decepticons show up at 17,000 BC and stomp on us while they turn into wheels.
1: All right. I kind of have to go through the chronology here, though. Because in the first movie, the Autobots sent the cube to Earth and the Decepticons then went to Earth after it. And this was sometime in the 19th century when Megatron got frozen in the Antarctic, right?
3: That's the interesting thing. We know that Megatron was found in 1895, 1891, whatever the year was exactly, but the interesting thing was, that's not when they landed. There's the comment made in the original movie that the AllSpark had been there for a very long time. I mean, millions of years, possibly, whenever they dated it. So, my initial question about the premise of this movie is, when did all that happen for Megatron to leave to go find the AllSpark, versus the events that we saw at the very beginning that would have led to a Autobot shuttle crash landing on the moon in 1961? Yeah, especially since... We later find out, you know, spoiler alert in full effect, that
1: Sentinel Prime is headed to Earth to meet with Megatron, but a long time has passed between 1961 and whenever the AllSpark crashed.
2: There are a lot of things starting with this that are not jiving with what's happened before. I, I call it a screenwriting device that is a combination of craziness And laziness that I will now just dub baziness. It's (laughs) just a combo that I have to accept that this is how this man creates a story. And, you know, I won't get into it all now, but no, this timeline doesn't sync up. It doesn't make any sense that a moon crash in 1961 is supposedly a rendezvous with someone that left... Possibly a hundred years prior.
1: I, I do want to say we can't completely kill Bay for this, that he didn't write this film. We got to put some hate to Aaron Krueger, who also, you know, he wrote my least favorite Scream film, Scream 3. And the last movie, along with two writers that refused to come back. Yeah, so it, it, perhaps it's not just Bay, it's Aaron Kruger has no idea how to set up a story, but didn't we see this kind of thing in the first one? Was it the whole point that they sent something away from Cybertron that they could win the war with and it came to Earth, and now the exact same thing happened mid-war, they sent something away from Cybertron and it crashed on Earth?
3: Yeah, I mean, Arnie, I, and I think just the point of the discussion here, I mean, I'll get into this a little bit later as we get to the scene you know, in, in Washington, but the interesting interesting thing is that i read the two trade paperback prequels for this film and it they do a pretty good job of trying to set up what this plot's all about why is the shuttle leaving what's really going on what's the the ploy it le- crashes on earth and you get a little bit more of the the background and i've got some comments for later about shockwave's involvement and megatron's involvement but yeah i mean the only thing i could tell myself about this is that when they shot down the ship Engines are out, the ship's pretty much dead, and is it, is it actually just floating slowly in space, you know, to where it takes a very long time for it to crash on Earth? Maybe it had the right telemetry or whatever, and it just ended up crashing on the moon set of Earth, so this is a big moment where we've got to just either accept that, okay, this is where we're at... And see where the movie takes us, or just really let it perplex us. I mean, I, I kind of compare this to my reaction to Star Wars Episode 3. I really enjoyed Episode 3, given what mess was already made of Episodes 1 and 2. So I was able to accept 3 in a vacuum, and I'm kind of doing that here. I really felt like 2 was a mess. It's obvious that they're really not sure how to jive this with one, but I'm willing to just accept this movie's premise just to enjoy Dark of the Moon in a vacuum. But you're right, it, it, it it's hard to pull this together.
1: All right, so the crash on the moon is what caused the space race. And for the second time this summer alone, we see JFK footage <laughs> taken in a totally new context. I just can't believe that in, what is it, 15 years, they haven't improved the poor lip-syncing technology from Forrest Gump. So they go to the moon, and this is what I was excited for, right here. This was the trailer, was Neil Armstrong and Balsa Aldrin on the moon, and it's a conspiracy, and this is, again, it reminds me so much of early Spielberg films, I'm like, I really want to know about this conspiracy. I love the whole concept that when they were on the dark of the moon, something nefarious was going on. But I said in the last podcast, my fear was it was going to be the 17,000 BC of this film. And it was. And I was so disappointed that we didn't spend more time here in the 60s and on the moon and with this conspiracy. We just see, they go, they see Sentinel Prime there. They take something back to Earth. And then we flash forward and... While this kind of has repercussions later, I feel like this was a premise not fully exploited. After seeing in X-Men First Class how much a prequel-type story where everything you know is wrong set in the 60s could work against the backdrop of real events, the recentness and the awesomeness of X-Men First Class makes this look
3: so much worse by comparison, but I was just so disappointed that this was all we got. Yeah, but at the same time, Arnie, I I wasn't expecting much more than this because we know based on the first two movies that humans did not interact with at least the Autobots readily until 2007. So I wasn't expecting a lot out of this one. This wasn't going to be a 60s period piece, but I really loved the concept of that's why we went to the moon. That's why Kennedy made it you know a priority and the fact they brought in the soviets trying to get there first and you know they didn't really play up on why that was a big u.s soviet type you know race beyond just getting to the moon is because we were racing to try to get to that technology i thought that was a neat premise to set everything up but i wasn't expecting to spend a lot of time here we were racing to get the technology so that we could bring it back and leave it at chernobyl Well, apparently the Soviets were trying to duplicate or do something with it that obviously went tragically wrong as we know the world, you know, the events of uh, 1986.
1: Now, Stuart, we talked in Wolverine about taking real world tragedies and fictionalizing them. And we actually, we talked about that with the Holocaust in X-Men 1. Where did you come down on Chernobyl's caused by a misuse of Autobot technology?
2: I didn't even understand
3: it. If we were the ones that reclaimed a bit from the ship, how did they get it? Well, one of the things that we saw when Simmons and Sam went to the Russians is that uh, apparently the Russians had had the opportunity to get their hands on some things as well. I can't fully explain why, you know, what they were doing at Chernobyl. Me personally, I... I wasn't a hundred percent comfortable with the fact of tying that into Chernobyl, since that was such a, a tragic event, not just an historical one. Landing on the moon and saying "haha, that's that's because we knew there were aliens there." That's one thing. I mean, you can easily say, "Yeah, right. It's it's kind of funny. It's a neat way to tie it into it." But to me, Chernobyl is. You know, they even talk in the movie about, well, this place won't be livable for another 20,000 years. Well, yeah, that impacted, you know, real people and real situations. And it, to make it a plot point in a movie, you know, what, 25 years later, I, I wasn't fully comfortable with that. I, I, I think that should have been a fictional location or a fictional situation would have sat a little bit better with me. But overall, I'm not going to, I'm not going to damn the movie over, but I, I didn't think it was the greatest choice. There's a
2: right way and a wrong way to apply real world and fantasy to create an alternate universe. And I think in X-Men, yeah, it, it skirts the line of taste to have a character who's using magical powers in a death camp. But I think it's even more far-fetched. It would have gone over the the rim if you had found out that, you know, a robot was creating the gas chambers. And and this seems to be where they're headed with that. Honestly, I wasn't buying into all of it. I just didn't feel like it was very well-married. I was kind of waiting to get back to the human story, because I wasn't entirely convinced that they had cracked
1: the code. You know what else that made me uncomfortable was that they say that since the events in Transformers 2 the Autobots are working to stop humans from killing other humans, it basically made me think that the robots were recruited to fight the War on Terror. And in fact, you see them plowing through some Middle East country.
2: Now this is the Transformer movie I wanted to see, folks. Come on! Like, are you serious? They're really gonna go there? Like, the (laughs) robots are just gonna up and go and run into some, uh, like... I. Who, who are these people? Is this Hamas? Who, uh, like, they're they rolling into a base in a U.S. task force under the umbrella of Nest? They're rolling in and blowing up bases. I mean, they better not screw up because Mossad agents are going to put sugar in their gas tank if they screw this up. Bad. <laughs> This is ridiculous that they would even try and posit these characters into contemporary, very thorny and complicated world problem issues. I just, I can't believe it. I dare them to follow this. But of course they don't. This is all just to give us an opening hurrah with Optimus and the boys, to get them in trouble, to call them out as kids that are, you know, sneaking out of the house, and to reintroduce us to
1: Nest. I can't agree more. It was a dropped line and an action scene with no dialogue. It should have been cut. It opens doors that it never intends to walk through and shouldn't walk through.
3: I didn't see the point in that scene. There, there's a little bit more behind it in the uh, in the comic book, but it wasn't needed. But at the same time, this scene didn't do anything to take me out of it. I mean, it was fine. It just kind of established a couple Autobots. It was just a brief couple minutes, and it's just showing that, hey, we're really all kind of back in good graces with the Autobots doing what we were doing before the Revenge of the Fallen crab, So No, but
2: I- Optimus does say, well, we've solved the Decepticon problem, so now we're helping out humans with their
1: concerns. Oh, really? You see, and here I am. I'm trying to get a feel for where this movie's going. Optimus says we are stopping humans from annihilating each other. I'm like, no, (laughs) don't tell me that's what I'm about to watch is Autobots (laughs) in the Middle East. No, no, no. And, Jerry, you say it didn't take you out of the movie, but that seems like a very apologist attitude for something that's in extremely poor taste. (laughs) I mean, putting Autobots fighting in the Middle East. That can't not take me out of the movie. Maybe, I mean, just because of how real world events are.
3: I don't see how that's poor taste. I mean, if it represents like, hey, the US and the United Nations or whatever is going to go do this military strike on Iranians doing something poorly and they're going to use their best weapons and assets, which would be the Transformers, to do it swiftly, then I don't know what's in poor taste about that. It's just simply that, hey, we're here to help protect Earth and this is part of it. This is part of Earth's conflict. And if they weren't there, other militaries would have been doing the job anyway. I I think you guys are reading way too much into that. My point is, the
2: Middle East has no clear-cut good guys and bad guys. And perspective and really an open mind is probably a better thing to have than a a robot with missiles. I really think (laughs) that you need diplomacy and not guns. But this is the interesting thing about the way that they're establishing the Autobots, is that they do seem to represent America, and they are fighting for the cause of of freedom, which is, I don't know, all of this freedom versus tyranny was reminding me a whole lot of Bush speak. I mean, you guys say Bay may or may not be uh, conservative, but I felt like in these last several movies, we've had nonsensical wars when the only thing we understand is the good guys are fighting for freedom and the bad guys are fighting for tyranny. And now they're getting involved in the Middle East, and I'm just thinking, hmm, this seems misguided.
1: I, I have to say, in this film, I came around to your line of thinking, Stuart. I think Bay makes his political affiliations quite clear in this film. I mean, there's the actual line, we're Republicans in this office. And I think that's <laughs> Bay speaking on behalf of the crew.
2: It gets deeper than that, but, you know... Uh- God knows we're not here for a
1: survey of the Middle East.
2: Let's get an ass shot.
1: Yes, this is where Bay's far more comfortable. Our introduction (laughs) to the new girlfriend, Carly. The first shot is right up her skirt. I was like... (laughs) We don't even see her face. No need. Uh, Admittedly, as soon as that ass was on camera, I'm like, Megan, who? It was a (laughs) hooting. I thought I was at the Coyote Ugly when this came on.
2: I mean, the theater just became, uh, people were throwing dollar bills up at the IMAX. (laughs) Now, does anyone know who this chick is?
1: She is a Victoria's Secret model who Michael Bay directed in a 2009 commercial for Victoria's Secret, and when Megan Fox called Bay Hitler and Spielberg said, get her out of here, because... Spielberg doesn't take kindly to Hitler jokes. Then Bay went to the nearest hottie who he'd worked with before. So she went from absolute nobody to star in what may be the top grossing film of the year by being right place, right time, right ass.
2: So you can throw a rock at a room full of models, and they'll probably be a better actress than Megan Fox. <laughs> and that's true. <laughs> I got to say, this girl has some natural presence. Typically, models are have the vacant-eyed stare and and seem to exist as a mannequin. But Like Megan Fox. I actually feel like there's more chemistry here. Now, I don't know that I buy that a out-of-work... Shia LaBeouf could land a Victoria's Secret model, but, you know... It- hey, his mom said it, he has a big dick.
3: <laughs> she was speculating, of course, but...
2: <laughs> you know, I just kept imagining, as the scene was unfolding, that somewhere, like, Megan Fox is planning, like, her own spinoff, <laughs> kind of, like uh, Sarah Jane did with K-9 on Doctor Who, where, like, she, mud skids, would open a detective agency, and solve crimes <laughs> and try to learn life lessons
1: like a uh, poor girl <laughs> it's just gone you say that but i could see it happening i mean shatner wrote <laughs> trek novels i could see mega yeah. fox writing transformer spinoff comics with yes her and mudflap and skids
2: mms so, like- Michaela Mudflappin' Skids
3: coming this fall on no channel on this planet. Yeah, I just want to see the thank you card that Rosie's going to be sending to Megan Fox for like, you know, it'd be interesting to see if this actually kickstarts a career. But I, I you know, I, I liked her in this movie. She was fine. I mean, she's, she's not going to be considered an outstanding actress. In fact, I think a few sites that I've been just looking at in the last, you know, few hours here since seeing the movie, people are like, oh, well, she's not that much better of an actress really than Megan Fox. And she's a little bit of improvement, but it's just another cardboard cutout, whatever. And it's like, yeah, she's not a fantastic actress or anything, but I enjoyed the different type of girlfriend that we see here versus the skank, Michaela. I mean, I, I enjoyed where it went. 30 seconds in the scene, I'm wondering how in the world did these two get together? I mean, of course, we kind of see it in a flashback at the White House, but seriously, she's, you know, I guess an A to a British ambassador, and now she's working a curator for a car cl- wait, 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 Where did this happen? <laughs> this is why I said at the beginning of the podcast,
1: this is the conversation I've dreaded worst because I have so many questions and this is a movie that just the makers don't care enough for me to ask the questions of. Why is a Brit working at the White House? Why did she no longer work at the White House and get this job as a car curator? Because she was working at the White House when Shia got his medal, right? Because they don't just let tourists go around there.
2: It's mentioned she worked at the British Embassy. So I think she's there to receive some kind of honor as well or something on behalf of Britain. It's vague, but it's just there to get these two in a room. Here's the thing. This role clearly still has the thumbprints and the fingerprints that were destined for Michaela. It would make a whole lot more sense that Michaela would be collected by a classic car aficionado who would put her in all of his pictures than it does a British girl who works at an embassy. I mean, it doesn't make any sense when you write it as a new girl, and I'm not saying I miss Megan Fox, but I do feel like it's too bad they couldn't have had this character continue on, because when she's asked to be involved later in the movie. You really need it to be someone that's already been there for a couple times during all this kind of robotic chaos.
1: The other thing that hit me, we already talked about how the Transformers timeline is all messed up. We're assuming Sam Witwicky got his medal probably immediately after Transformers 2, right? I mean, they don't wait a year or so to give you a medal. And upon getting this medal, he immediately hits on this blonde. We're told he's dumped by Megan Fox. Is it perhaps because he was hitting on the blonde right after telling Megan Fox he loves her?
2: (laughs) I don't know, but uh, yeah, all I know is that he makes the crack. That finally I have a girl who likes me for me, so she was just using him for the car. He got Bumblebee. <laughs> Bumblebee that's where Bumblebee is. That's those black ops thing that the reason why they tell us he's not around anymore.
3: It's not mud flapping skids. I'm on to you, Michaela. Here's the interesting thing. I was surprised by how much they referenced throughout the entire movie it came up over and over again about the old girlfriend and not by name. Oh, oh no no not, no, not by, by name, name. But I mean, come on, you know. And in, in, in then Sam even makes a statement it's like, "Well, hey, I, you know, I moved on to something better." And you know, at that point, I looked over. and Dan said, "Ouch!" <laughs> you know, there was their shot.
1: There's even worse ones than that. There's like Sam's mom going, "Oh, she was so mean," and things like that. And it's like, "Well, yeah, she called the director Hitler, so yeah, we're gonna call her mean." Good comeback there, Bay. <laughs> That
2: said, the fact that the girlfriend is an improvement but only slight sort of is metaphorical here for me. I'm like, yes, it's better, but I don't know that I feel like it's good, particularly when they have awkward exchanges about stuffed bunny rabbits bringing good luck.
1: That never goes anywhere either. Well, when they break up, she tears it in half. And then it never comes <laughs> up again.
2: <laughs> Woo! It's a little baziness for you.
3: Roll <laughs> out,
2: dudes. Let's go on.
3: No, no, wait wait A, a stuffed bunny is not a roll out moment that's not something to call back to that's not the gun in the first act that has to i mean that you guys are looking way too much into this that's just a little thing to show how cute and playful they are she tears the foot off like he asked for in the first place and that's just a side joke guys i mean i I didn't want that to come back did did you yes i did i did
2: yeah yeah good writing (laughs) there has to be reasons not for absurdity you can't just be zany just to be zane. Or you can, but I feel like it suffers. In
1: addition, Sam has two other roommates, one of them, Wheelie, and his partner, Brains. Ironic. Brains is new, right? Oh, absolutely. All right, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I kind of liked Brains with his combination of Sling Blade, Wolfman Jack speak.
2: Your limb is your own, and good luck. I hope you don't fall and break yourself.
1: I mean, I just, every time he spoke with that Wolfman Jack, I found them alive i was cracking up i was having flashbacks to american graffiti but it was and he's like i was in her panty drawer it's like craziness it's it's so off the wall that every time it, it was like laughing at a child who pulled down his pants in the middle of the room and pooped
3: but it's still somewhat amusing you know brains was uh his background is explained in one of the trade paperback prequels I'm annoyed how the movie wanted us to just accept that, yep, here's another little character that we don't know where it came from. It felt like Michael Bay's compromise of, if I can't have and skids, I-, I need one tiny shred of something that's going to be inappropriate occasionally and fortunately his screen presence was far less than Skids and Mudflap and again I'm annoyed jumping ahead a little bit but he ends up being kind of useful at the end of the movie see so you're like oh slapping your foreheads like well if, of course he would be instrumental at the end to keep me from completely saying they shouldn't have had him in the movie at all but he was tolerable I mean at least they minimized the screen time of that thing they
1: shouldn't have had him in the movie at all because just because he does something that they could have written any other character to do any other way does not justify this thing's existence.
3: <laughs> don't, and don't hear me say that. I'm, he does something specific. And Grant, you're right. They could have written it differently. I'm very annoyed of that he shows up out of nowhere without even a line of who he is, where he came from, why he's with Sam. We didn't even get a line of why Wheelie, you know, why did Sam get Wheelie in the divorce? I, d- I don't know that either. <laughs> I think that's one
1: of a you take him, no, you take him kind of thing. More importantly, why is he housing Autobots if Nest won't even talk to him? They won't take his calls, but he's supposed to be They call it witness protection for these two.
2: It's what we brought up last time of what is Sam all about. I mean, why is he going to college when he's already had this interaction with alien technology? I I got a question for the room. Does the world know that there have been aliens? Because at this point, major landmarks are destroyed. I mean, Petra, the pyramids of Giza, I would think that the whole world understands it's not a cover-up or a conspiracy. There are robotic creatures in outer space
1: here. We've set up Energon devices to track them. The movie's inconsistent. On the one hand, yes, The Fallen made this big speech on the last one. Took over all TV stations. It's in our opening credits. People of the human eye. Blah, blah. And then, Sam's in an interview, and he's like, during that alien invasion that occurred, and everybody knows... But yet, Sam can't explain why he has this medal. I saved your life twice, but I can't tell you why. It is inconsistent. The movie wants it both ways, and it can't have it both ways. When, later on, Laserbeak shoots up an office, everybody's just like, Oh, it's those aliens we knew about that you weren't allowed to know about five minutes ago, and Wang was trying to keep a desperate secret. The movie cheats.
2: My point is, if we know about the aliens, we can know about what Sam did. He did, after all, get a medal from a president. I think that he could find a better gig. And the, his whole quandary of being ordinary and struggling just like everybody else in the job market has no relevance, if that is the truth. And I, that was... A struggle. On one hand, they want to make him seem like your average kid coming out of college, but at the same time, an Ivy Leaguer who's saved the world from Alien invasion twice and gotten an Obama medal is not going to not be able to find a job better than with John Malkovich and his color-coordinated
3: floors. This was one of my complaints about the last movie. You know, this this kind of struggle that Sam is experiencing is kind of what I wanted to see in the second movie versus his choice of just going off to college and being a normal kid. Here, you guys are right, it makes no sense now. Too much has happened for, you know, Sam to be uh, anonymous. I, I kind of wish the movie would have bypassed, streamlined a lot of the stuff, and just said, hey, you know, the government put Sam through college because they, you know, really he needs to have a bachelor's degree or something. They're training him in the CIA, and he's going to be working with Nest. Boom, let's get to the conflict. I, I really wish they had Streamline that because you're right all they ended up doing was just kind of making something messy they did i mean there's the scene
1: where simmons is talking to bill riley and they all know about the transformers in that scene they're they're all up to speed so it's not a secret the transformers were battling on earth but yet in the opening voiceover optimus says we work in secret it's like there were two different drafts of the film and they shot pages from each and never reconcile it and that pisses me off Because, again, we now ask this question, and I think that you're supposed to be lobotomized before going in. I think that's Bay's preferred audience.
2: Arnie, it's Bayziness. You just roll out. I mean, I, I get this. At this point, this had always been the knock against Michael Bay, and I totally understand. Everything is in service. ...of raw sensation. It's not important how we get to where we get to... ...as long as we have a successive series of phenomenal, over-the-top action scenes. And yes, this plot is not any better than the last two. And kind of disappointing, because I felt like the buzz was... ...and my perception was, watching the trailers... ...was that they had tried to learn from their mistakes and we're putting together something that made a whole lot more sense. It isn't a problem in these early scenes. They're more just like questions. But when we finally get to Sentinel Prime and his motivations for betrayal... I, I gotta tell you, I, all hope was lost.
1: I did appreciate the, the first scene with Wheelie when he's channel flipping through the TV. Star Trek comes on, and he goes, oh, I've seen this one. It's the one where Spock goes nuts and turns evil.
2: <laughs> yeah, no, that was great. And there's a lot of Star Trek referencing throughout this. I mean, when Shia goes to Carly's boss's place, he's like, this place looks like the Enterprise. And, of course, Spock is going to do a whole riff on his famous The Needs of the Many Outweigh the Needs of of the few line later. I mean, they know that they got the dude from Star Trek and they're milking it for
1: all it's worth. But if I can become evil Spock for a moment, shave my goatee be the mirror universe. I'm going to disagree with you, Stuart. I think the plot of this one is better. Uh, It's marginally better, but it's better. I like that humans are involved now and there's traitorous humans that improves the story. I like that when we start off Megatron and Starscream and Soundwave are in exile somewhere and Megatron looks homeless. He's got like a bag over his head. I like the arc that goes on here. I like the twists and turns of the human allegiances. And Robot allegiances for that matter. It's slightly better.
3: Yeah, Arnie, I, I need to agree with you on that. I, I think the plot is just a little bit more sensible and just in, in the regard of what it is that's pushing the story along. The plot holes are, there are some big enough to drive an Optimus Prime through, but I mean, at the same time, I get what the conflict is. I get who are the good guys, who are the bad guys, and we have a big battle at the end. So I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I think this was a little bit more of a straightforward plot to justify all the action, whereas Revenge of the Fallen, you just can't comprehend why people are making the choices they make and then then the action's not even fun so i'm with you i I think we're definitely an improved movie here from revenge of the fallen are we are we at least agreed on that if the screenplay were a road you still would not be able to drive on it there are still
2: (laughs) too many potholes to make it to the end revenge of the fallen was a bridge that had collapsed this is just a dirt road with too many holes to make it to your destination. I, I still feel like, and to my dismay, this screenplay is a utter mess. It asks us to roll out again and again on things that make no sense.
1: You see, and, and here is where I see two different points. I agree with Stuart on this one. The screenplay is a total mess, but when he said the plot was no better, the plot is slightly better, but the way the plot is delivered is just as bad. We still have absurd
2: authority figures who are here essentially to be mocked in very unfunny, gregarious scenes. I mean, John Malkovich is here. Why? So that Shia can have revenge and turn him into the messenger boy after he's had to work for him in the mailroom, Wang. They got the guy from The Hangover and make dick jokes about Deep Wang, so that he could hand them a couple newspaper clippings that looked like a phallus. I mean, come on. The humor in this is no better. The jokes writing is deplorable.
1: That bathroom scene with Wang on top of him in the stall, pulling papers literally out of his ass and shoving them under Sam's nose deplorable, easily as offensive as any part in part two, be it John Turturro's jockstrap or Devastator's testicles.
3: Yeah, I'm going to agree. That is the one scene where I felt like for sure that we were getting the level of humor from the the second one. Not not with obviously the the things we talked about with Skids and Mudflat, but yeah, the, the examples you mentioned, Arnie, were perfect. I am only thankful that That was a relatively short bit that I don't think has an equal, whereas Revenge of the Fallen, there's like one here, oh, wait, we'll have another one in 10 minutes, and oh, oh, don't worry, we'll be back in 20 minutes and call somebody else this thing. It's all over, Revenge of the Fallen, and here, it's almost like he got out of his system in a couple spurts.
2: I don't know. My favorite bad joke is they ridicule some woman for dressing like a hoochie mama, and then, of course, they have Carly running around in high heels in that dress for the rest of the movie. I'm like, yeah, you really hate this, don't you? It's really obnoxious to me that they take such easy pot shots at people and you just never feel compassion. I guess that's what I'm really struggling with, is that with Spielberg's name attached to something, at the very least you imagine something being emotional, sensitive. But Bay's instincts are 180 degrees the opposite. I mean, everyone here exists to be ridiculed, and the only people that are decent are average Joes. Guys. That's it. Everyone else is to be laughed at or objectified. And I want to put a more fine point on this. I think that Autobots and Deceptions are what they are, but they're not why I would be here. As someone that is not immediately sold on the concepts, I'm here to see how human beings relate to them and fit into their world problems. And so I need to like one of these humans. I liked Shia in the originally. I thought that he had pretty good comic timing and he just didn't seem like such a buffoon. But now they're really just struggling to keep him in the storyline. Bumblebee's not even around. And I just feel like there's no reason to keep following this guy around. And why is Wang targeted by the Decepticons? And why did he go to Shia with what he knew?
1: I can answer that one. He was targeted because he was one of dozens, I take it, of humans that the Decepticons had bribed or coerced into helping them to block information about the moon. And this happened to the Russians, and it happened here. And he was a software engineer who reprogrammed satellites to give false information so that no one knew the Decepticons were up there taking the rods. But then, once they got everything they needed and the cover-up was over, they didn't want anyone who knew what they'd been doing, and so they ordered Laserbeak to kill all the humans who they'd been pushing around. But at that office, he programmed satellites, is what he tells Laserbeak.
3: Well, I mean, his door calls him a vice president of something. I don't remember what it was, but I mean, I don't even know if he's an underling of John Malkovich.
1: It seemed to me like he was perhaps... Malkovich's boss
3: yeah no I mean he's an executive in that company whatever it is it does and it's tied into something with Dylan Gould because he's on the board of directors and obviously he's involved in it from an accounting perspective and Jerry Wang apparently knows who Sam Witwicky is I mean he starts off with the hey you're the alien guy blah 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 so he gets it and obviously we learned that you know Dylan had put Sam in there intentionally I guess just to keep your friends close your enemies closer type thing so he was trying to just keep an eye on Sam so it comes together at the end I mean the the scene in the bathroom's ridiculous, but I mean, it's what really kicks off for Sam to understand that, hey, Decepticons are killing humans, and I gotta get back involved in this. I think that's a, a fine spark to get Sam's story moving. I wish it. Happen sooner but you know i will overlook the contrivances of why sam would
2: wind up working at the very company where all of this is happening when it's not clearly aerospace it's not even clear what sam studied and just accept that okay this guy was there and recognized him all that i am still not clear why the decepticons megatron under megatron's order he's in africa and all of a sudden says kill them all and this bird's going around executing all of their people w- why Why now? Why then? Why ever? And it's kind of a disturbing montage. Like there's a scene where the bird turns pink and like seduces this little kid girl and is waiting for the dad to come home and then executes him right in front of her. I mean, it's a, it's kind of heavy for a movie sold to families. I, I don't know how you felt about that scene, Jerry, or whether you'd let your kid watch this, but
3: I was a little alarmed. I mean, it lets you know that the stakes were higher, that blood was going to be spilt this time. Yeah, I got to agree with you. I think the fact that Laser Beak turns into a little Five foot pink bumblebee is what it looked like to me to be playing in the kid's room. That was creepy. I'm, I'm still kind of on the fence whether or not I you know, want to take my son to see this. I mean, he's 10 now, so I mean, I I don't think that's going to creep him out. I mean, my six-year-old daughter wouldn't have any interest in seeing it anyway. I wouldn't take her anywhere near it. That's the kind of thing that would give her nightmares. There were some disturbing images all around. Yeah, no, it's a tougher movie. It's more brutal. I feel like they wanted
2: to to show that he had the guts to go there, and and I think that does make the movie uh, better, or at least the stakes higher. I think it helps a little.
1: I completely agree. I think that giving it a more serious tone as far as stakes and violence and showing some death made me feel like The movie was trying to have villains that were villainous instead of just cartoony. I gotta say, I love who they picked. I mean, to have Laserbeak, I said in the last couple podcasts, I felt like there were no ties to G1, but when Laserbeak shows up and perches himself on Soundwave's arm, I was like, that's the kind of G1 callbacks I've been wanting.
2: He was a cassette,
1: wasn't he? In in the old one, yeah, but now he's whatever he wants to be.
2: In in that movie I watched, that cartoon he was, Mm -hmm. he he, he spied on them, but... that's not his job now. Now he's just sort of a hitman.
1: He was always an attacker though. He shot lasers in the old cartoon. Let me guess. Out of his beak. No, he had guns on his shoulders. But no, I mean, I liked that callback. I liked that it was Laserbeak, and I was I liked that they made him tough. I mean,
3: he was scary. Now the fact that he spoke English words—that's a little odd. Now the the original Generation One comics that you know that Marvel did, the cassettes would talk actually all the time, but we never saw that in the cartoon, so it, it didn't bother me. But it surprised me when he's you know in Wang's office and he's being the tough guy too. That that did surprise me a little bit. He's Laserbeak's the one that goes in, shoots him up, and and then leaves. It's kind of funny that they. Have dialogue, but Whatever. I mean, it's fine.
2: You guys like Laserbeak. The one that really grabbed me, my favorite Decepticon or Autobot, really, I got to say, and I don't remember him seeing him before, Shockwave, right? Who's this guy? Because he looks like a 50-foot gyrating coil of an eel creature. I mean, it's it's quite an impressive visual. If I thought the Constructicons were cool the last time, but were disappointed that they didn't really do anything once they came together, this one has follow-through. This guy is pretty impressive.
3: Well, understand the coily, humongous robot that you saw is not actually Shockwave. Huh? Shockwave. The one that's that's drilling through the buildings? Yeah. That's not Shockwave? Shockwave? Then who is that? (laughs) I thought it was part of Shockwave the way the trailer was part of Prime. It's a robot that's under Shockwave's command. I mean, it's it, it it's under name? the, the cool. robot that's going through the buildings.
2: Yeah, the one I like.
3: Yeah. Comics, they just call them the, the Cybertron <laughs> Drillers. It's there with Shockwave to do what Shockwave wants, but Shockwave's just the the one-eyed <laughs> robot it's that's saying the very
2: thing right, even when I'm trying to compliment
1: it. <laughs> I love Shockwave. Oh, I hate him. He doesn't do shit. <laughs> I know. I honestly thought that Shockwave transformed into this giant thing. And you're telling, and I got confused at the end because the driller thing was spinning around and Shockwave was there. So I'm like, Oh, it's a part of Shockwave, like Prime and his trailer or something. The snake is its own beast. That has no name? (laughs) That seems really wasted.
2: And did anyone get confused? Probably not you guys, because you've seen up on your Transformers, but I thought that this was the name of the satellite, but that was Soundwave, right? Shockwave
3: has nothing to do with Soundwave. They're two different things. Yeah, two completely different robots. We get Soundwave here.
2: Soundwave was a satellite in space last
3: time, Yes,
2: and now he's Carly's car. I like the way that that reveals how Patrick Dempsey's evil, because he gives her a car because Sam has got a clone of Bumblebee that's just a Junker Camaro, and so he's "Quote unquote being nice and gives her a car. We should have known it wasn't an American car. We I knew. knew, I knew. You knew it was going to be bad. You didn't know. I, I was fooled, and I, I enjoyed the reveal that once she got in the car.
1: If the watch is evil, everybody's evil.
2: <laughs> but you're finding that out at the same time. I mean, that's yeah,
1: that's all the same scene. And I trust no car. Even th- I thought all the classic cars were Decepticons. Honestly.
2: Yeah, well, I like the reveal, and I should have seen it coming, but I didn't. The only thing that threw me was once she's finally in the car and there's tentacles spinning around her, they're like, and it's Soundwave, and I'm like, what? But aren't you in space?
1: I guess they can just change into anything, right? Okay, so you were talking about Dylan and his turn. Let's let's take a step back and look at Sentinel Prime.
2: Please, because I've got so many questions as to what he is about. Now, we're introduced to him as the guy, the only one, that's in the ship that crashed,
3: right? He's the sole pilot, right? Well, there were others in the ship, but he's clearly the only one we care about.
2: Simplicity! Going forward, <laughs> he's the one that matters. The Autobots bring him back to Earth.
3: Yes, because
1: he was their leader, and Optimus has some kind of Rodimus Prime complex going on that if Sentinel had stuck around, maybe the war wouldn't have been lost.
2: And Sentinel got out of there at the last minute because we'll find out he's brokering peace with these pillars. These All these magical pillars will allow them to rebuild the war they've broken up, and he
3: feels like, I'm confused. I, too, was a little uncertain about what really the ploy was, because the premise is is that Sentinel Prime leaves in the Ark, the Decepticons shoot it down, yet he's leaving to defect to the Decepticons. The Decepticons actually go to the moon, that's part of the cover-up, the Decepticons go, they take all but five of the pillars, I guess realize that Sentinel's dead, so we're just going to sit back and wait for Optimus to figure all this out, and then he can use the Matrix to revive Sentinel, and then we can activate the Space Bridge. There's no way that could possibly be a plan.
2: No, this is what I call basiness. and it's very, very core. He's hoping to throw enough chase scenes and action scenes to distract you, so that you never go back and ask, why did they do that? Because when you actually walk through the incredibly convoluted, complicated, and usually absurd scenarios, piled upon scenarios, there is no reason for this plot. There's no way that these pillars help end the peace. It doesn't help the Autobots. It doesn't help the Decepticons. It has nothing to do with ending a war. Correct? We can agree on that. There's nothing about them that end a war. They create a bridge that allows, what I thought, creatures from another place or time, they use the word time, Mm -hmm. to travel to where that said pillar is. That's all that they do. So if you're having a war on Cybertron, while you're carting all those pillars to our galaxy to meet Megatron that left, over a hundred years ago and then you crash i don't have the spare tires to roll out anymore three movies in i needed answers and there ain't a damn wheel every axle is broken you know what i mean i cannot roll out anymore on these crazy
1: plots i mean i get the generalities that Sentinel Prime saw this war as mutually destructive, and the only way to save the planet and stop annihilation of the species was to partner with Megatron. He makes it very clear that he he's not working for Megatron, he's working with Megatron,
3: in that they can form a peace. But the peace is... What? Here's the one thing I took out of it is that he was going to use the technology to fix one of the wrongs of Cybertron, which is they needed to find a source of energon. The resources of the planet. Kind of back to the first movie. The thing that I feel that the movie was okay with is that, no, he's not establishing the piece from the Autobots' perspective. He's establishing the piece from the Decepticons' perspective, which is just annihilate Earth, takes all the resources, take these humans, they're slaves, who cares, they're insects, let's take them, or rebuild Cybertron. And what I was uncertain about is why did it benefit bringing Cybertron into Earth's atmosphere? Because that's going to do nothing but just destroy the entire galaxy, but... This is
1: written by somebody who never cracked a science book. They
3: opened it for about a <laughs> as long as Sam Witwicky and Transformers 2. <laughs> Oddly enough, there's a throwback to a Generation 1 two-parter, three-parter that Decepticons did this very thing in, a, in the G1 cartoon It didn't end any better form. All
2: right, let's keep this bare bones simple because my head hurts. I don't want to ask these questions. I'm not rewarded for asking them, but let's keep it real simple. Optimus thinks that Sentinel is still a good guy, but he's not. Optimist hands this guy the Matrix of Leadership, which can do some really cool stuff, right? It can bring everybody back to life and their brother and bring people down from Transformer heaven, (laughs) what have you. Anyone that's ever died, they're coming back. It's a party! And Sentinel says,
1: no, I don't know this world. You keep it. Sentinel is either conflicted or stupid because later (laughs) he has a knife at Optimus's throat and then says, you're lucky I didn't kill you. (laughs)
2: It is not logical, sir, to take another page from Spock. It is not logical.
3: (laughs) Yeah, I I don't understand why he wouldn't accept the Matrix. That would seem like a big win, uh, unless he just felt like, hey, this isn't the right time to reveal myself. Let me build a little trust. Unfortunately, I knew what was going to happen with Sentinel because of looking at the toys for Sentinel Prime, it lays it all out. Which kind of pissed me off a little bit, but I mean, you know, even I was like, wait a minute, what's, what's he doing? Why is he not taking this?
2: As soon as we know that the Decepticons want Prime to regenerate Sentinel, that, that, that's something that they want, I think you can fill in the blanks to think that he is going to wittingly or unwittingly help them achieve their goal. I mean, yeah, it wasn't really a big shocker when Sentinel all of the sudden says, Hey, I don't like you guys anymore and shoots
1: Ironhide, right? He just kills him right there. But he lets Prime live. I mean, maybe because they're related. They both are last name Prime, but...
2: I mean, he's a pacifier, right? He's not here to kill one side or the other. He wants them all to stop fighting and live on a recreated Cybertron. That's... I'll just call it what it is. He's Obama, right? He placates both sides and pleases nobody and tries to find a middle ground and everyone hates him for it. I mean, I feel like Sentinel is the very representation
1: of Obama evil. And... Oh my God, Stuart, they hired Leonard Nimoy. They keep referring to Obama as Spock. Yes. The media well, with the ears and the eyebrows. This is what I'm getting out of it. it I really am seeing a, a, a political undertone. I mean. <laughs> I thought Leonard Nimoy just needed to pay the rent. No, <laughs> there's
3: a there's a method to their casting madness. <laughs> no, Leonard Nimoy is married to Susan Bay, who is Michael Bay's cousin. So they're actually family. I
2: didn't know that.
3: Yeah, they, no, there, there's actually a family connection there. He wanted to ask him to do a voice. I don't remember if it was the first movie or the second movie. He was just kind of, he just wasn't sure if that'd be appropriate because of the family tie.
2: Oh, well, and here I was thinking he was doing a callback to Transformers, the cartoon movie because obviously we first heard Nimoy doing Galvatron so many podcasts ago, it feels like.
1: Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat as Stuart. I didn't know of the relation. I thought it was a G1 callback but now I think it's completely an a ob- bomb rip <laughs> it's
2: many things at once and you know i don't want to over analyze or, or create demons where they're not any yeah, but
1: honestly i don't know if this script is smart enough to do it
2: <laughs> but i can't help feeling that that is what makes sentinel evil is that he tries to placate rather than take a stand with freedom and beat the crap out of the other side, which stands for tyranny, which has so many more acolytes. There's so many other people that would rather have tyranny than freedom. I mean, these weird Bush concepts, they make no sense here. and I'm trying to make sense of them, and all I'm getting is mush.
1: You're not alone because there are many times in this entire Transformers trilogy that I'm watching the movie and I keep asking myself, the Autobots are good because we're told that. I question the Autobots' righteousness at times, and then I see something where, like, well, clearly the Autobots are supposedly doing what we say. I want to get to their exile in a moment, but they primarily go, okay, if that's what humans want, it's what we'll do, whereas Decepticons are out to kill the humans. So, I mean, in that level, I suppose it's pretty black and white. Fight, but.
2: Yeah, it's very easy to say one is good and one is bad, but when I am a person coming into a property and not really knowing, I like to know the whys, and this movie doesn't want you to take that at face value. That we're good, they're bad, and Sentinel's trying to work with both sides, and that makes him bad. Pillars. Now, they have a whole bunch of them, they scattered them around the world, but they really only need the one, right? Just to bring everything back from Cybertron. That seems to be the deal. There's only one that really seems to matter.
1: Well, here's what I got of the pillars is that there are hundreds and each of them can transport, but one is the control. In in a very video game-like mission briefing way, we're told this pillar, which is stored at this location is what controls all the others. You must destroy this pillar. And what it's bringing
2: is actual planet of Cybertron with everyone on it
1: from before there was a war? This is where I get a little confused. They first bring Decepticons, hundreds of Decepticons.
3: That are on the moon for reasons unknown. Because of the space bridge, they're not necessarily on the moon. He could be pulling them straight back from Cybertron. But, I don't but, but know exactly they come what-
2: out of, like, lunar craters and stuff. Like, they were buried there the whole time. Like, War of the Worlds. Like, ba we're finally resurrected. That's what I got.
1: They definitely were digging their way out. Maybe Sentinel brought them. Yeah, maybe they were in that ship and then
2: crawled out of that ship and then dug a hole and got in the moon. (laughs) Maybe they did that. I think they did that. That seems to make a lot of sense.
1: Moving on. (laughs) Rolling out. Now that we've got all these Decepticons here, Sentinel demands the Autobots be sent away from Earth. And the Autobots ostensibly agree, but because the Decepticons don't trust them, they kidnap Carly. But then Sam succumbs after, you know, calling himself a hero for half the movie. He becomes a spy for the villains. He goes to Optimus and he's like, no other human will know. Tell me your plan. We have no plan. We will leave.
2: It's a fake. So I can only presume that Optimus knew that he roll was out roll out i okay, can't figure
1: right. it out jerry can you enlighten me is it
3: in the prequel material because i'm roll out There's a little bit more in the novel. Apparently Sam is trying to say something to Prime about no other human will know. There's other dialogue. There's something else to where it's clear that Sam is signaling Optimus and that he understands. I personally don't understand why it was needed that Sam go spy on him when ultimately he wasn't going to reveal a plan to him anyway. And and the film just plays it off with Dylan just saying, yep, we just wanted to make sure they were going. And then they shoot (laughs) it down. that, that that bothered me. That was senseless. It was like a vehicle for Sam, because he had that robot on his wrist, just to do some physical comedy. Well,
2: it does introduce one thing. It brings us back to Epps. We hadn't seen him. I had thought that they had just cut him out of the plot, but he's working for NASA now. I guess they'll let him actually do something, unlike Nest, where he basically <laughs> stood around and act disgruntled all the time. So we do get to see him, and we do find out that the ship itself was built by
1: the wreckers. Ironically, they constructed things. <laughs> <laughs> the constructed cause destroy, and the wreckers build. And
2: we get Totoro out of this too. It is bringing back a lot of these characters for this scene, and gets them all in the same place to watch what is essentially a replay of the Challenger blow up. I'm like, we got Chernobyl, the Challenger. <laughs> I mean, like, why?
1: This really is an '80s movie. One thing about Simmons. We're introduced to Simmons. He's now mega rich and mega crazy. Was this alluded to ever before? Well, the crazy has always been there, but But the not rich like is- this. Not like don't play with my obsession. You know, that kind of thing. He's he's always been off, but never been
3: like OCD type crazy. I just kinda of took it that he obviously wrote a book, got some money off of that, and just because he's a little bit more independent. That it's just allowing him to just do whatever the heck he wants and he can just feels like he can get away with things. He's got this sidekick Dutch who's equally as crazy in his own separate little way. I just took it that, yep, he's got some money and watch out. Do
1: people really get that rich off books anymore? Does Bay know the state of the publishing industry? But my answer to myself is no, Bay's never read a book. So, obviously he thinks people can become as rich as he is off movies by writing novels and non-fiction.
3: Yeah, I mean, the only possible defense for that is if he's on O'Reilly's show and it's apparently enough of a buzz because of the things that he's talking about. I don't
2: know. O'Reilly ain't Oprah. I, I don't see it happening.
3: <laughs> yeah, there is no O'Reilly Book Club. But you
1: mentioned Dutch. I want to give a shout out to Alan Tudek. I'm not a Serenity fan, but I know he was in it. I am a fan of Dodgeball, where he was Steve the Pirate. I was happy to see him here. I thought he was a bright light in the film.
2: I didn't understand the character. It was yet another kind of buffoon, but I did like it when he finally stopped being dumb. When they finally let
1: him have some moves, and he takes charge in the Russian club. and He has a couple of funny lines, yeah, in the Russian club, where he's like, it's all the buttons you don't use on your phone. I I laughed.
2: He's a techie. I think he's the one that figures out how to get the bridges down in the final battle of Mm -hmm. Chicago. He's there doing stuff, but there's too many characters. I didn't need another character. That was my feeling about it, was that we just didn't need anybody in this role.
1: No, but when you've got such unlikable people like Malkovich's character, Francis McDormand's character, you know, all these people who are reputably good actors doing bad things. This was a performance I truly enjoyed.
2: This movie uh, of all three, I'm not saying it's the worst by any means. It's not. But I feel like it's the one that utilizes the military to the least effect. I just feel like those guys
1: really, Mall and all those guys, really don't do anything until they get to Chicago. And when they get to Chicago, that's where... In Trump Tower, Dempsey has taken Carly, and it's also where Megatron and Sentinel are launching their attack. And they've taken control of Chicago, and I thought this scene was actually reminiscent of Terminator. You know, last movie we had the Terminatrix, now we've got these flying hover ships killing all the humans.
2: It's a very abrupt change. Like, they go from, we need to seal off the city, cut, and all of a sudden there are giant bugs, Ships flying through, zapping thing. I'm like, oh, okay. Like, I felt like there was a scene actually missing, and, and not to say I would want this movie a millisecond longer, but they waste no time like getting us into the thick of battle once they decide that Chicago is headquarters. Honestly, it was reminding me a little bit of Battle L.A., like the sequel set in Chicago or something. <laughs> I felt like this was. In some ways, almost identical when, when we're dealing with Epps and his crew battling on the ground with these ships in the air. I, I feel like this really was straight out of, well, any sci-fi movie I've seen in the last couple of years.
1: I gotta say, though, I like the assault on Chicago. I mean, the Autobots return, who didn't see that coming? What I question is why they lied. They always seem so respectful of humans' wishes, but in this case, they're like, oh, we knew this would all go to shit anyway without us, so we just kind of hung out in the booster rocket.
2: And Optimus is definitely, they bring out his, they ire his dander here. I mean, he is angry. I mean, I feel like I've never really seen him in such an authoritative militant... Homicidal! Homicidal! We will kill them all! I (laughs) mean, he's, he's really angry, and it was kind of, you know, refreshing to see that side of him after he's always like... You know, getting into the space shuttle, he's like, you can lose faith in us, but never lose faith in yourself. I'm like, oh, God, you just got a carburetor full of cliches, (laughs) don't you? Can the self-help and get some moxie, dude? Well, he got it. He got it in this final battle, and it was much needed. I didn't maybe need all the speechifying about freedom. I'm not sure what he was standing for, but it was fun to see him kick a little ass, finally, when he did, when he isn't caught up in construction
1: cables. You see, and to me, jury... Maybe you can give your thoughts, but for me, I thought this was out of character for Prime. I know he's the leader of the Autobots in a war, but I can never recall seeing him, we will kill them all. And, like, I know he wants victory, but I never thought he wanted victory through... Genocide.
3: Yeah, I mean, clearly this isn't the Generation One '80s Optimus Prime. the The prequel material does a really good job of explaining kind of what's really at stake, the things that Optimus Prime has lost at the hands of Shockwave and, and Megatron. To me, I applaud it because it. Well, let's call it realistic because it's live action for a second. In a realistic war film, which is kind of what this is in Chicago now, seeing what Decepticons are doing and what Sentinel Prime is doing and the way they're murdering humans, what else do you do? You put a couple bullets in his head and you call it done. I mean, that, that to me is how you handle those situations. And you know, It's not, alright guys, put the cuffs on him and let's, you know, take him to justice. Let's set up Cybertronian court and, You know, bring in the, the Quintessons, the Past judgment then we get can... no no just just end it I, I thought it was perfect i loved seeing that out of prime but you know what it just kind of goes back to like
1: the superhero movies we've been reviewing for me where if you're killing someone in battle it becomes a self-defense thing and at the end of this one i mean to jump ahead a little bit optimus prime puts the smack down on sentinel and when sentinel's down optimus blows his head off you know it's like it's a different thing if If Superman knocked down Lex Luthor, and while Lex Luthor was on the ground going, okay, I lost, Superman explodes
3: his head with heat vision. Is that cool? I think it'd be freaking awesome, but, you know.
1: You know what I mean.
2: (laughs) It's different for robots. It's always different for robots, Arnie.
1: I know, and that's the the thing is, but if we're supposed to care about these robots as characters.
2: Well, at one point, Shia does refer to him as, you know, Optimus made a mistake. He's like, well, that makes you human. I thought that was a funny moment because I thought, huh. I haven't really thought of these people as being humans. I've never thought of them as having human, I mean, obviously they're humanoid, obviously they speak like I do, but I just, I've never related to them in the way that I would if they were flesh and blood. I just, I didn't see them that way. But the rule is, if they're made out of metal and gears and parts, we can eviscerate them in front of your eyes and it's not violence.
1: But what I was liking about this scene wasn't really the robot violence. I got to say, we haven't talked about it yet, but I thought at the beginning of this movie that they were doing a better job of making them so that I could tell the robots apart. I was noticing they were more primary colors. When in robot mode, the primary colors were more visible. So I was able to, to some degree, tell them apart until the end when, like, All of a sudden, they brought in 200 new robots, and I can't tell who's fighting who again, and I got- kind of lost, except for, like, the close-ups. I could tell when Q died and all of that. But what I liked was Sam and the nesters going into the building that's toppling. I thought that was a really well-choreographed, imaginative action scene, the likes of which I've never seen before. They jump out the window, they slide down the building, they realize they're going too far, they break the window to slide back in the building. It called back in a positive way to that fight on the ceiling from Inception.
2: It is the highlight of the movie for me. It involves Shockwave. Who is my favorite character, a robotic
3: character. No, he's my favorite character in this movie. <laughs> Except that wasn't Shockwave. Your driller. Oh, you're, the driller friend oh, is who you like. Oh,
2: I will just never get over that. Why won't you just let me call it Shockwave? <laughs> <laughs> when Shockwave and the driller are taking on that building, it is my favorite part of the movie. It's where I feel like, yes, all of the stuff back and forth in the collapsing building is so much fun. It utilizes the 3D. When someone goes sailing through the window and over and down like that's the best 3d moment in the movie or i i just feel like they know what they're doing at this point like this is where the movie's energized i wouldn't even argue that all of chicago is that great but this part in chicago is tremendous and i did have a lot of fun watching
1: this sequence You know, it's funny that you bring up the 3D because throughout the whole movie and even during this scene, I kept feeling like the 3D was lackluster, especially during the scenes where I thought it really should be good. I was thinking it's all moving so damn fast that I'm just my eyes aren't registering it and I'm not Mm -hmm. doing so well. But during the slow motion scenes, I'm like, wow, this really, I think, should pop and doesn't. It turns out, I found this out after, they shot all the slow-mo in 2D and post-converted it. So for all the shot in 3D bullshit, there is a lot of post-conversion here because Bay loves his slow-mo and every single slow-mo shots post-conversion, just like all the cheap Thor Green Lantern stuff.
3: Well, it depends what you want to call a lot. The breakdown is about 30% of it was post-converted. 70% of it was filmed 3D. So, I mean, that's fair. I, think. I want to agree with you, Arnie, though. I was not feeling the 3D. And
2: again, my point of reference for 3D is Green Lantern and Avatar. And I think I'm figuring it out now. I don't particularly think 3D does much when you're shooting uh, the real world. Now, if you're going to do animation, if you're going to do what Cameron did and create a photorealistic, computer-generated world, I think you can do stuff with that that makes it feel tactile. But here, it's still just... I don't know. I know that they used the Cameron cameras, and I know that they didn't post-convert all of this. A lot of it is not post-converted, but I agree with you. For most of this movie, until this ending, I'm not feeling like the 3D is adding much at all.
1: And to agree with you, Tron Legacy, I thought, had an amazing 3D when they were in the artificial world. But having seen Tron Legacy in IMAX and in regular, the IMAX popped so much more. That's why I was curious if you two had a impressive or lackluster 3D experience. Because by and large, I didn't walk out of here thinking it was Avatar cool. No.
3: Yes, I never saw Avatar in theaters in 3D, so I, I can't speak to that. I thought the experience was fine. But I have learned quickly this summer that 2D movies are, are fine. They've been fine for a long time. I think seeing this movie on IMAX was cool. And I, I will probably see this movie again, and I'll I'll try in 2D just to kind of see what I think. But it wasn't a wow, but I thought I, I enjoyed it. I thought it looked good, unlike Thor. I saw Thor in 3D, and I thought that was worthless. I had zero extra out of that. I got a little out of this. I mean, it, it was good. I will say it was better than Thor and better than Green Lantern,
1: but of the shot in 3D films I've seen, it was perhaps the least impressive. And during this building scene, I was impressed with the action, but not with the 3D.
2: I think it all kind of coalesced here. I really felt like this is where I had the most fun in the entire movie. It took a long time to get there, but I really did enjoy this. I also really liked the squirrel guys. I thought that utilized the 3D, too. That's real footage. These guys really jumped off the Sears Tower. I guess it's called Willis Tower now. Who knew? But, <laughs> uh, and they filmed that, and they don't really look cool in those suits, but when they're flying, it works for me. And I, I really feel like in 3D, that stuff is really great.
1: That was good. I will completely agree with you. That felt like it was floating off the screen. It was pretty nice, and I didn't realize it was real. I actually was sitting there, and because I was so not into this movie. I was sitting there thinking, well, I bet there's a giant fan against that green screen. No, nope, that's the real stuff.
3: Oh, no, I didn't think that had a green screen appearance at all. I mean, I'm not, I'm not surprised to hear that was real. I mean, they tied up Chicago for like a month filming a lot of this stuff, so that doesn't surprise me at all. And I want to say, even though I am steward in L.A., I,
2: I did live in Chicago for a decade, and I know the city very well. They utilized it very well. I, I'm like, I know that corner bakery. I know that, I mean, like I really knew what they were doing, and it logically flows. I mean, the couple where the main pillar is, that's uh, Chicago Tribune building, and it is right there. They didn't cheat, as I've seen so often. Often when they shoot over here and then, you know, shoot three miles away and it's supposed to be next door, they really go with the layout of Michigan Avenue and downtown Chicago, and I think they capture it really well. What I'm really wondering, as all of this is going around, once I cut through the baziness to figure out what's going, the planet is descending upon
1: the city. He is actually bringing this down on top of them. Am I the only one who was shocked by this? Because when they keep saying they're bringing Cybertron here, I kind of pictured they were like going to terraform and relocate. I didn't know the house movers were coming.
2: Right. The Genesis device. Thinking of Star Trek, this movie is full of Star Trek references. You just wipe everything out and make it into whatever you need it to be. Actually having it be a separate planet coming down into our gravitational field helps no one. I guess it makes for easier travel. I feel like if Sentinel Prime was meant to be an accidental villain, that he didn't really want to hurt people, but because they were in our way and we're insignificant and they, we, it doesn't matter what happens to us, I feel like he could have brokered the peace by putting Cybertron anywhere. I didn't understand why it
1: had to be on Earth if they weren't actually using Earth's soil. No, they're coming here so that they can quickly shuttle the people to Cybertron to rebuild. The fact that apparently there won't be an atmosphere on Cybertron notwithstanding. What people? Humans. We are to be their slave labor to- The
2: ones they don't vaporize? Yeah. Are going to go on Cybertron and physically dig ditches and build whatever Cybertron was?
1: Yeah, that is the plan. Really? (laughs) (laughs)
3: Jerry, am I wrong? Well, no, the whole slave labor was very clear. I wasn't sure, you know, to what you're saying about the atmosphere of what they're actually going to do. I mean, it it could have been, I I can't even speculate. I don't know what you'd use them for on Cybertron. If you're going to use them on Earth to gather stuff, clearly the Transformers are far more built and created to handle that kind of labor. I mean, could you imagine how long it would take 6 billion humans to do anything that 10 Transformers could do? I mean, I
2: can't think of a... Job that's manual labor that you wouldn't rather have the robot do over the human. Sorry, industrial factory workers, <laughs> but that is why we're in the crisis we are. It is because machines replicate faster than human hands in most circumstances. And yeah, wow, that's all kinds of craziness.
1: All right. Yeah, so I thought the gate. Was going to bring, like, the people here to inhabit Earth, and they were taking over, and we'd be their slaves, and we'd be forced to, like, turn Earth into a robot, you know, Superman 3 style, but no, they're bringing the planet here, and they stop it! Optimus shoots it with Shockwave's gun, and it stops, and, like... Half the planet stays and the other half is gone? Wouldn't that rip the planet in half? I don't know
2: what it would do, but I know this much. They have told me again and again that Sentinel had to come back from the grave because he's the only one, the only one, that can work these pillars. Him and Patrick Dempsey. Because Patrick Dempsey all of a sudden goes, no, I want this planet to come crashing down upon us, and turns the thing back on. Really? That helps who?
3: Thanks, McDreamy. (laughs) The movie sort of portrayed Dempsey's character as not realizing what was actually going to happen. And I almost half thought that maybe Dempsey's character would have done something to help the Autobots and the humans and sacrifice himself or just end up getting killed in his F eff- Cause it seemed like he was conflicted at some point, And then the end was just bizarre. I didn't have any problems with him just hitting the button again, because at that point Sentinel already set it up and got it activated. He just needed to put one of those pillars back in place and hit a button. I, I didn't find that part of it as Sentinel being the only one necessarily being contradictory Sentinel already set it up but still the use of the character at the very end although I like the little fight between him and Sam I thought it was cool that Sam was the one who got to take him out
2: well they set it up early that right. I mean
3: Sam does tell him I'm going to be the one to kill you
2: we knew that these two had to fight and you know if the girl's in the middle so you always the two guys and one girl it's gonna it's gonna end bloody
1: <laughs> well You know, Jerry, you mentioned maybe McDreamy would sacrifice himself or something. Am I the only one who really thought for all the grittiness of this film and all the more seriousness of this film, one of the returning characters had to die, preferably Simmons, like during the car chase earlier when Simmons is picked up and chucked out of a car?
2: I thought it was dead. Yeah, I agree. i I was surprised to see him back in the chair.
1: Yeah. For all the raised stakes, this movie still pulls every punch.
2: Well, they do kill Q, who was teary-eyed over Q's death. He looks like Einstein. It's sad. (laughs) No, they didn't take out any of the major ones. I knew they wouldn't go with Bumblebee, but... For a half second, I toyed with the idea of what the movie would feel like if they did. He gets away.
1: I exactly had the same thought. They killed Q, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, wow, they're gonna kill Bumble. No, they're not. They will not kill Bumblebee because they're selling a mask of Bumblebee. You cannot (laughs) blow the head off what you're selling the mask of.
2: If the Transformers, the cartoon movie, taught them nothing, it's you cannot kill a major beloved character. It will turn them against the toys. It'll turn them against everything.
1: But I was really enjoying all this Chicago stuff, by and large. The the Cybertron's coming here made me scratch my head. Until the Carly Megatron heart to heart.
2: (laughs) (laughs) Well, here's where I think it would have made more sense if it had been Michaela. And, again, I'm not advocating that Megan Fox was robbed. I think this is a better actress. But if it had been the same character over three movies, I could understand there being a relationship between Megatron and this girl. But who is she to him, and why would he even, like deign to turn his head to look at her and not just squash her like one of the
3: spiders. She has no clout. I just... I don't see anyone listening to Carl. The thing is, I'm not even 100% sure how Megatron got in that position. Was there a part where Sentinel Prime just, like, threw him off the building and he landed there, or... Kind of seemed like he was just, like, walling away in his own self-pity. Uh, it was like he had just decided to be Chicago
2: homeless all
3: of a sudden. I don't know. Like,
2: you know, <laughs> Sindel makes it very clear that he doesn't work for them. He works with them, and he kind of gets he gets a tube there. Spock's got to, you know. And he digs his thumb in
1: Megatron's wound and kind of...
2: Spock's got his attitude going, but I never got the sense that Megatron had been so hurt that he was defeated that way. It it was a weird, weird moment. You know, they did it for a Spock joke, but Sentinel says the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few to justify why he's doing what he's doing. Is he really meaning to imply that there are more... Uh, I think there's only 200 Decepticons left, that there's not more humans, and certainly when you take into account all the life on the Earth, that there's not more of them than there is of them. I, does that make any sense?
3: The humans aren't playing at his equation. I mean, Megatron, and apparently where Sentinel Prime is, they're not considering humans a worthy life to even put in the equation. I mean, it's like, hey, I will sacrifice this pathetic Earth and all these stupid humans to save Cybertron. Not that we exactly know how his plan going to do that, but you know what I'm saying.
2: Yeah, he makes the line, he says it twice, actually, that on Cybertron we're gods, here we're just machines. But that's giving humans a lot of power. Like, what we say is that self-defines them. I just
1: feel like, I don't know. But Megatron is so pissed off that he is being seen as Sentinel's bitch, the film's <laughs> term, that just when Sentinel is about to kill Prime, Megatron saves Prime's life.
3: Yeah. Because that makes sense. Can I tell you what the biggest... Transformer logic problem with this movie is, and and Stuart, you you triggered this for me with something you said on Revenge of the Fallen. This aggravates me. I think George Lucas did this with the the prequels, and apparently Michael Bay is doing these movies truly one at a time, but it'd been kind of cool if you could go back in time and think, hey, let me think about what the third movie's gonna be like as I'm doing the first one and the second one, etc., etc. You had Megatron as the bad guy in the first one. That made a lot of sense. Stuart, you said that in the second one, why not just be the Fallen? Why do you need Megatron? And now. Uh You just said that, and I think about this third movie. Why couldn't the third movie just been, hey, the big bad guy is someone who used to be our mentor and our leader, and that's it? Shockwave could have been a far bigger part of the movie, could have been the true successor, leader of the Decepticons, took over for the dead Megatron, is working with Sentinel Prime, and let that threesome duke it out. That would have worked a lot better for me. This franchise should have abandoned Megatron in the first movie. Of course, he's one of the biggest names in Transformers behind Optimus and Bumblebee themselves, but that would have been a better flow of bad guys. Transformers the movie, he got turned into Galvatron, so it's not like... And the show lasted one more season. Yeah, they've already learned from that mistake. Kill
1: Megatron once, shame on you. Kill Megatron twice, (laughs)
3: kill the franchise. Heck, I mean, have Sentinel Prime redesign, fix him into Galvatron. I could have went with that, but the use of Megatron and the lack of use of Shockwave here just baffles me because, and granted, this could just be the internet buzz, but for the last year and a half, Shockwave was touted as being the main villain of this movie. Now, that could have just been us fanboys knowing he was in it and just assumed it, but it's like, wow.
2: Well, he's definitely more badass than Megatron. I'll, I'll say that much. And I just, again, simplicity, shortening the characters. We didn't need everyone to come back, particularly if you're going to add new ones. I definitely could have understood the movie better if it was Sentinel and Shockwave, and that was it. But Prime kills Sentinel and rips Megatron's head off. I mean, here's a moment where they could have actually had Truce, right? This is the last one in the trilogy. We could actually see them, Autobot, Decepticon, coming together, right? They could have done it that way.
3: No. That would never have been fulfilling to any Transformer fan. I mean, that there's no precedent of that. There's no desire to see Megatron and Optimus Prime patch it up.
2: You'd never want to see these two enemies, like, no. bury the
1: hatchet and God, like,
3: no. be cool? No, no, wow. no.
1: <laughs> the two teamed up against the bigger bad. I mean, it could work. You
2: know, they almost have a Joker and Batman relationship here, and of course I'm thinking Nolan, because it's shot in Chicago, pretty much on the same street, and, you know, he says, what would you be without me? Time to find out. And bam. I mean, I I do feel like they were trying to say one can't exist without the other, so maybe there can be no Autobot without Decepticon.
3: The two of them shaking hands and saying, well... Thanks for your help, but next time we meet we'll be enemies and they fly off in opposite directions. That would have been a terrible ending. It was better, especially if we are going to say and, and believe for now that this is the last Michael Bay, this is the last Bayformers universe, this is it? Yeah, rip his head off. I think that, that's perfect. I completely agree with Jerry
1: on that. This has been touted as the end of the trilogy, the end of the Bayformers. And... Yeah, I liked that finality. We've already seen him dead, what, twice? So, ripping his head off like this and having oil spurt out his neck, I'm game as that for the end of the series. And, you know, I don't feel as bad about it as I do of the cold-blooded execution of Optimus' mentor, Sentinel. So, no, I'm for the ripping off of Megatron's head.
2: I guess I'm from the uh, horror movie school of eh, rip their head off, impale them, whatever. They'll always come back. The only way to really give me a sense of finality is to change the dynamic. But the simplest solution is the best at this point. Rip his head off. Close credits. I'm with it.
1: So in the last scene, after all is said and done, Sam professes his love for Carly. And I I was disappointed because there's the scene. The parents make useless cameos in this film. They're there for one reason, and
2: that is to make a dick joke. Well, okay, two reasons. Uh, They're also there to imply that their love is something that Sam and Carly could aspire to have.
1: But there's this big thing of, tell him what you told me. And he's like, well, it's corny, but I told your mother, I will follow you to the end of time. And the mother's like, and that's when I found out I loved him. And yet at the end, Sam and Carly are there, and Sam's just like, whatever happens, I will stand by. Why does he not say, I will follow you to the end of time? (laughs) Same reason
2: he doesn't put on the ring, because if fanboys don't like this chick, she'll be gone next movie.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Bumblebee's throwing out wedding sprockets and moaning, here comes the bride... He did that same thing for Michaela. Look
3: where she's at. I think he liked Michaela better. Maybe he was trying to scare her off Carly. <laughs> yeah, I'm just surprised he didn't, you know, transform and offer up his hood, you know, for the moment, but whatever.
2: Yeah. How do you feel
3: about three ways? How do you, how could he express that when he can't even talk? Is
2: there a song that has that kind of sentiment stuck in the middle with you?
1: I don't know. <laughs> well, I guess this means Stuart, Jerry, do you recommend Transformers? dark of the moon Stuart
2: (laughs) (laughs) you know what I'm going to go with the ending song on this one over the credits they got some band going let it go
1: let it go
2: I will let it go (laughs) this has not worked out for me I I feel like I've never had to see you know X-Files was was a twofer but this Series has been twice as long, and I can't recommend a single one. It's disappointing. Now, obviously, if your comparison of Terrible is Transformers Revenge of the Fallen, this is an improvement. There's no doubt about it. But honestly, I think I had more patience for the first movie. I felt like, for whatever its problems were, I was able to have a little bit more fun with that, and I gave that a mild not recommend. Here, I'm just tired of it. I feel like what's good about this movie is not good enough to endure what's not good about this movie. And I just feel like what Bay is concerned about are things that I'm not concerned about. i got to say, for a movie experience where you're processing characters, stories, plots, all of this, I cannot recommend this movie. It's
3: no... Jerry! You know, the, the Michael Bay experiments with Transformers has been very interesting. I mean, not having known anything about Michael Bay until 2007, I wasn't sure what to expect. I mean, obviously the background of him is that he didn't want to do it himself and it was a trip to Hasbro that, that convinced him. And it's one of those things that it saddens me that the series as a whole was done by someone who who apparently you know is willing to listen I guess to some of the general folklore but you know doesn't have the appreciation that I think most Transformer fanboys would have liked to have uh, seen that said I have to judge these movies for what they are not what they could have been I mean I could easily point out it's like wow that didn't make sense and that didn't make sense and and, and they legitimately don't I mean you you guys have made all the right points I mean I walked out of the movie with a list not only a list of things that I didn't care for, but in a, a list of some other things that I just knew you guys would bring up. And it, it's legitimate. I can sit down with Transformers, turn my brain off, and just enjoy the movie that's in front of me. I wasn't able to do that with *Revenge of the Fallen*. Of course, I didn't recommend that one because of just there was more flaws than good. I guess this one I am going to recommend this movie, particularly to the Transformer fan, particularly to the you know someone who just wants to see a you know a really good action movie. I I think this is going to be the blockbuster of the summer, with the possible exception of *Harry Potter*. Those movies always make a gajillion dollars year you know around the world, but I think this movie will be huge, and I think it's really fun to watch. And if you can get past some of the plot holes and not nitpick too much on things that I really think you can overlook, then I think people will have fun with this movie. There, there is There's more to enjoy here than there is to pick apart. I don't expect... You know, people who aren't a big fan of the Transformers franchise to pick up on a lot of these things. Perhaps they'll pick up on other things. But I say definitely go out and check this movie out. I, I would recommend it. I think that's it's certainly for what Michael Bay's done with this series, particularly Revenge of the Fallen, he's ending it on, on a much higher note. I think it's worth checking out. I certainly hope that there's a reboot in our future with something that is more Transformers- folklore focused it's not a strong recommendation but it's a yeah i'd recommend it i'd check it out i will pick this up when when it comes out on blu-ray I'll, I'll add it to the collection and be happy to watch it another time or two as for me
1: my final thought i will say this
3: wholeheartedly
1: it's very rare when i can say a part three is the best of a series dream warriors is my go-to now transformers Darker the moon best of the series If you enjoyed either of the previous two, I don't know how you could have, but if you did, then I recommend this because it's got all the elements of the first two, including the threadbare story. But what I imagine people liked about the last two are amped up, including the humor and the action. But due to the lack of story, having difficulty telling the robots apart still, even with the colors on the new ones, and the disappointing abortion of the government cover-up story, I didn't enjoy it. So I don't recommend it to audiences overall. You know, Buzz Aldrin has a cameo in this film. Uh, Around the same time it was premiered, his wife left him. I I wonder if there's a coincidence there, but (laughs) if if I can take Buzz's lines, this is one small step for computer graphic imagery, one giant leap backwards for intelligent narratives. (laughs) Or if to quote the movie itself, the mother says of Sam's new car, it reminds me a lot of Bumblebee. If Bumblebee were a sad piece of shit... Well, this film reminded me a lot of Terminator 2, if Terminator 2 were a poorly written piece of shit. (laughs) We get it, Artie. You didn't like it. I mean, this is like a story written by a five-year-old, making it up as he goes along, forgetting entire plot points, but I don't think this film's appropriate for five-year-olds. But nobody over the age of five should abide such a bad story. Jerry, you said you turned off your brain. It insults me. It insults me deeply that as an American society, we should be able to take stupid shit. I am a ended by this and I gotta say this is not the first series a whole slate of not recommends Black Christmas and X-Files are both complete whiffs in my opinion too but as Stuart pointed out this is longer and I said this and I mean it out of all the movies now playing's ever done this is the one that I dreaded coming to this conversation because Michael Bay makes it so clear that yes he wants you to turn your brain off it's what Bay wanted me to do he doesn't want us to ask the questions he doesn't care enough to write a narrative that makes sense and out of all the retrospective series we've ever done this is the one i am least proud of participating in because (laughs) these films don't deserve my time (laughs) you know sam at the end of this movie says you chose sides you chose wrong well we chose this series We chose wrong. It's a 3D movie with a 1D script. Not recommend. (laughs) But would you come back for a remake or a sequel? I would. I would come back <laughs> I would come back for a reboot. Because you know what is part of all of this. What I take away from this, what I hold on to as my medal, my Sam's medal from all of this, is that this retrospective series had me go back and rewatch most of season one of the Generation One Transformers cartoon. And I love it. I do. I love that cartoon. I would love to see the things about that cartoon. In a film, modernized, but not so unrecognizable. Would I come back for a Transformers 4? You know, we kind of have this now playing thing. We've only had to do it with Saw. We kind of have the now playing curse. We kill franchises.
2: It's true. As soon as we cover it, it's like there won't be another. I don't know what we do, but like maybe it's because we not recommend the last one always.
1: (laughs) But (laughs) I mean, we have this thing where if there's another film in the franchise, we get the band back together to go see it. If Bay returned for Transformers 4, ah, there'd have to be some convincing and some lobbying on behalf of the audience to tell me that they want me to come back for it. We could put it up to a vote. Yeah, there would have to be a vote of just yes or no, because honestly, it so disenheartens me that, like Jerry said, this is going to make a buttload of money, and I just... I'm so upset that it couldn't go to a better, smarter franchise and a better film like X-Men First Class, something that is both exciting and actually well-written and well-made.
2: I hear what you're saying, Arnie, and I I do resent the fact... that they can make this many mistakes and be rewarded for it because they get one thing right and that is they know how to make stuff look good that's to me that is not even covering the basics but for non discriminating people that like raw sensation this is a hell of a ride and I do think it's going to make a ton of money I can't imagine them stopping with this but I do take Bayez's word I think he might be done with this three movies in a row he probably would like to tell another story or do another movie maybe make something closer to his own experience
1: and believe it or not i would love for him to i would love for him to go back to something like he used to do bad boys 3 i'd be there something original by him that looked good like armageddon or the rock i'd be there i'm not anti bay and i'm not anti transformers but i'm anti bay to the core
2: i get you and I-, I gotta say as the newbie i haven't been won over you say you love the cartoon my only reference to this cartoon is that cartoon movie and i don't want any more of that
3: you know, Arnie, don't don't mishear me. I, I don't think by any stretch of the imagination that the Transformers franchise got the best treatment, or even the treatment that I would have wanted to see it get if someone was going to go do a trilogy of movies. I mean, I, I put things in perspective. I mean, we're recommending should someone go out in a summer spend ten dollars and watch this movie. Yeah, I pay twenty. I was 15 wow. and I didn't even get IMAX. Well, anyway, I mean, I think there are a lot of mistakes. There's a lot of things that could have been done far better. And I hope a reboot fixes some of this. I'm with you in the sense that I'm hoping that when it gets rebooted, it could be done better. It could be m- a little bit more true to Transformers. But that said, Revenge of the Fallen aside, I don't think these movies were, you know, anything that you can't sit, and watch, and enjoy for a two and a half hour movie. I couldn't. I did not enjoy myself at all.
1: I at the end. Well, clearly, <laughs> I, I mean that's the thing. I want to I want to point out. I mean, I am the voice of now playing that does stand here and say I would recommend Armageddon. And you know,
2: I've never heard you say a bad word about Bay until this series, Arnie. You usually cite him as an influence you enjoy and appreciate and want more of in your movies.
1: Yeah. So I want to s- be clear to any new listeners who found us with this series. I'm the defender of fun junk. I didn't find fun here. The end fights had some creative things. But as I said earlier, there were no characters for me to relate to. And if I'm not relating, you know, Stuart, you said something about just visceral fun. I mean, trying to review this film when there's no characters you care about is like trying to review a porn film. And instead of cum shots, we have explosions. (laughs) But the characters are as well written, as is the dialogue, as is the plotting. It's just a big budget explosion porn, and I mean that in every negative connotation of it. But thank you, Stuart and Jerry, for joining me on this journey. Oh, yes. So we're
2: not going to do this again, I take it. All right, well, next week is what? We're back
1: to Marvel. Yes, it's going to be fantastic as we do Roger Corman. Wait, Roger Corman? Fantastic?
2: I mean, I I saw Generation X. This is not a good thing, Marvel and Roger Corman, but... Hey, whatever. Uh, it's, I'm the newbie, so I, I'll find out if they can keep the quality going from X Men over into Fantastic
1: Four. But, you know, if Corman isn't good enough, Halloween is coming. It's July, but horror movies are coming aplenty. We're starting our final Destination Retrospective series in tandem, a bonus series, thanks to all the donors who've donated money to Now Playing to keep us going.
2: Yeah, two a week. That's exciting. I'm really looking forward to Cowboys and Aliens. I always like original concepts. Series are fun, but I think we've seen that when, uh, you know, sequels aren't working, it doesn't usually get a whole lot better. Here's an original idea for Summer. Great. Cowboys, Aliens, it sells itself. I can't wait to see what that is. And seeing Harrison Ford and Daniel Craig in the Wild West ought to be a lot of fun.
1: I'm excited for it. I think it looks great. I'm a fan of Favreau's directing style. And then, Stuart, we have
2: Bright Night. We're doing one of my favorites from the 80s. This one really caught me right at the onset of my horror fandom love. This was one of the foundational movies that really carried me throughout the 80s. It wasn't the slasher movies. It was this. It was this vampire story from the 80s. It's coming
1: back. We'll see what it's going to be like. And Jerry, we hope you can come back and join us for another retrospective series in the near future.
3: But yeah, hey, thanks, guys, for letting me uh, jump in here with the Transformers retrospective. And don't forget, you can hear Jerry over at Republic
1: Forces Radio Network at RepublicForces.com, where Jerry and several others are reviewing Gennady Tartakovsky's Clone Wars micro-series, back from... 2003 to 2005 taking place between episodes 2 and 3 of Star Wars and Jerry just hosted the last episode of Star Wars Action News, the Star Wars collecting podcast that I and Marjorie normally host at SWActionNews.com so for those looking for more Jerry reviews, check out those two shows. And don't forget, check out nowplayingpodcast.com. You can come to our forums, tell us what you thought of Transformers. Or you can kind of bash us because I've seen some people on Facebook saying things like, I saw Transformers 3 trailer and said there's no way I'm saying that piece of shit. Now I'm buying a ticket. Thanks, Now Playing. <laughs> <laughs> so come to the forums, come to our Facebook page. You can follow us on Facebook and on Twitter where we are Now Playing Pod, or you can just go to Now Playing Podcast.com and find links to both of our social media pages and you can also find all of our archives where you can hear our reviews of other series our Marvel series where we've done the Marvel Misfits of Howard the Duck a podcast I really recommend Man Thing Kick-Ass X-Men as well as other movie series X-Files Black Christmas Lost Boys, Tron, and individual movie reviews like Human Centipede, Inception, and Avatar, all of it is at the archives at nowplayingpodcast.com. Stuart Jerry, thank you again for joining me, and we'll be back till all are one.
0: All races United by a history long forgotten and a future we shall face together. I am Optimus Prime, and I send this message so that our pasts will always be remembered. For in those memories, we live on. Thank you for listening to this episode of Now Playing's Transformers Movie Retrospective Series. Tell Grimlock about Petro Rabbits again. Remember to come back to NowPlayingPodcast.com each week as we review another Transformers film leading up to the weekend of release review of this summer's Transformers Dark of the Moon. Never seen anything like this before. And in the NowPlayingPodcast.com archives... You can find reviews of other films, such as Terminator, X-Men, Star Trek, Predator, and many more. As well as individual movie reviews, such as Avatar, Inception, Howard the Duck, and Scott Pilgrim Versus the World. Your your friends will love it. It sure is a lot of fun. And while at NowPlayingPodcast.com, be sure to join our forums where you can discuss the Transformers movies with other listeners. Are you not surprised to see us? You can also follow Now Playing on Facebook and Twitter, where we post announcements of new episodes and where the hosts post movie mini-reviews. Links to our social media pages are at nowplayingpodcast.com. We are here. We are waiting. Support from listeners like you help keep Now Playing operating. I owe you my life. We are in your debt. You can find the link to donate using PayPal at the bottom of our website, nowplayingpodcast.com. Just ask yourself, what would Jesus do? You can also show your love of Now Playing Podcast by shopping in our store, where you can buy Now Playing t-shirts, coffee mugs, mouse pads, and much more. The link to our Cafe Press store is available at our homepage. Like us, there's more to them than meets the eye. Now Playing's Transformers retrospective series is edited by Jerry, Carlos, and Arnie.
1: Did you know it was going to be this hard? Can you just stop?
0: Now Playing is not affiliated with Hasbro Incorporated, Paramount Pictures, DreamWorks Pictures, or 20th Century Fox. Not a word until we get a lawyer! Transformers, and all that the Transformers universe contains, is the property of Hasbro Incorporated, and no infringement is intended. Okay, so what? I, I downloaded a couple of thousand songs off the internet. Who has it? The opinions expressed on Now Playing are those of the individual hosts, and may not reflect the opinion of Ngonza Media Incorporated.
2: There's something a little fishy about you, your son, your little Taco Bell dog, and this whole operation you got going on here.
0: Now playing is a Venganza Media production. Copyright 2011. All rights reserved. Come on, show time's over. We've got work to do.
3: This, <laughs> I think, it this is going is... to be worth it. It's going to be worth it, Arnie. Let's 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 roll out. <laughs> I'm ready to roll out already. Stewart, Jerry, do you recommend Transformers: <laughs> Dark of <and> the Moon? <laughs> Wait a minute. Just with Leonard Nimoy, you guys know the relationship between Leonard Nimoy and Michael Bay, right? Do they both like photographing fat chicks?
2: (laughs) (laughs) Clearly not, Arnie. Clearly not. (laughs) Well,
3: perhaps. I don't know what Michael Bay does in his spare time, but no. He should have been. Shockwave or Shockwave's tentacle friend. (laughs) Get it right. Shockwave ain't shit. As Transformer fans, nobody gives a crap about the driller. Shockwave is a mainstay. When people knew that Shockwave was in this movie, it was like, oh, Finally, because
2: the only way I would recommend this movie is if you partnered it with the Pink Floyd album, maybe. And you know how like Wizard of Oz, <laughs> if you play that you see secret messages. <laughs> maybe maybe if you played it like I'd watch it again, play that, and I bet you money comes up when Crip base name comes up in the credits. I bet you anything. <laughs> we'll have to test that out. Go bots. Go bots mighty robots. Mighty movies.
3: There, there's a little bit more behind it in the uh, in the comic book, but it, it wasn't needed. Did but Prime same time.
1: catch Bin Laden? <laughs> Is that how we finally had our victory? <laughs> why won't you just let me
2: call it shockwave <laughs> why can't it be shockwave tall. do you have to buy two different ones is that what it came down to it's too like if i buy shockwave do i not get the snake can i get my slinky and pretend
1: that it's uh, i just all right it does make shockwave less cool and the victory over uh, him
2: less I, i'm calling it shockwaves what, what do i call it
3: well, it's the it's the driller. That's what they called in the in the comics. It's the driller. When I, he
1: made those cool boomsticks that you worked for like a minute and then stopped. My favorite moment in Transformers 3 is when it reminded me of Army of Darkness. <laughs> you know, there's Dylan. Everybody must get killed. It insults me. It insults me deeply that as an American society, we should be able to take bum, stupid bum, shit. Bum, 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 bum,
2: bum. I'm just giving you some background. Music. <laughs> I mean,
1: I, Keep it, going. It, it really feels like the whole world is rallying around fruity pebbles <laughs> which have no nutritional value whatsoever. Taste good going down, but in the end will kill you from diabetes and obesity.
2: What the hell was that? (laughs) Oh my god, I'm going to just go throw away my cereal right now. You got me angry, Arnie. (laughs)